This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the next episode of the Great Ormond Street Pediatric Bioethics Podcast. My name is Joe Briley. I'm the director of the centre. I'm delighted today to have Francis Crawley, who's going to have a conversation on the impact of digital societies on children's health. First, Francis, could you explain a bit about yourself, your background, and your interest in bioethics? Thanks very much, Professor Barley, Joe. Yeah, so my background is in philosophy, and as you can hear, you would probably see it too if this wasn't just a podcast. I'm originally American, but I've been living for over 35 years here in Leuven in Belgium, because that's where I came to study philosophy after studying in the U.S., Met my wife, got planted, rooted, raised two children. And very early on in my career, I got involved with an association in Belgium that was looking at good clinical practice in the early 1990s. And it was an association made up of people largely from industry, but also from academia, and also with some representation from, let's say, European Commission institutions. And in the early 1990s, that was when, in fact, the ICH, with clinical practice guidelines, which are now being revised again, were being drafted. And so I started with that group, and we had a small working group on ethics, and we decided to look at ethics committees in Europe, which, in fact, nobody knew anything about at that time. And so we ended up writing guidelines and recommendations for European ethics committees that was published yes. in 1993. That's where it started. You and I remember that. It seems a long time ago to people who may be listening, I guess, but I was always fascinated. Well, I remember that I was kind of a newly qualified doctor, but getting interested in this area of research ethics, I was always astonished how little had been compared throughout Europe and organized. So that work was really seminal really starting to lay things out. How did you go from there to where you are now then? Well, so as an American who had just been going to school here and studying here, in fact, I was running the international program in philosophy at the university as a part of my research. And so I was involved in international things. But what that gave me was being so close to Brussels, in fact, was a a gift in a way. I got to know Brussels. I got to know the European institutions. I got to understand the relationship between the European institutions and the member states, and also how legislation worked in Europe and how that went through the European area. And then in 1996, I was asked to sit on the UNAIDS Ethical Review Committee, which I sat on for its entire existence between 96 and 2000. And that gave me a larger view of the world. And then in 1999, the World Health Organization asked me to put together a meeting on ethics committees in Asia and Western Pacific. We ended up then in 2000 writing the operational guidelines for ethics committees that review biomedical research, which became the the first international guidance for ethics review. And what we did then was translated into about 45 languages. I think no WHO document has ever seen so much. And we then set about implementing it by establishing four for ethics committees in Asia, the Western Pacific, and Africa, Latin America. 
and in the CIS countries, the former Soviet countries. So that's that really sent me around the world a bit and gave me a view on how things were going. And it was, as you say, it was a kind of exciting time because prior really to this implementation of good clinical practice and the rise of the research ethics committees, it was really bioethics that was out there, much less than research ethics. And then eventually, of course, we would have research integrity on top of that. So I pretty much rode the wave of the impact, let's say, of clinical trials and ICHGCP, I think, still, still very much on the formation of the world with regard to ethics. Yeah. I, I think you're being super modest. I mean, the idea you're in the right place at the right time, but a lot of this stuff you made happen. So let, you know, let's, let's leave that there. But I, it's interesting that almost now research ethics seems a lot more established than bioethics in many countries. So it's a lot more supported, funded, and the processes are a lot more normalized, I think. So anyway, I'll, I'll leave that as a statement. To move to the topic we're going to talk about, the impact of digital societies on children's health. I mean, it's a huge area. And I guess maybe to start off with, maybe even exploring what you think we mean by digital society would be helpful. Yep. But just a little bit more biography just to okay, just to, to get us into the digital world or to get myself into the digital world. When I was writing my master's thesis, my sister in California sent me my first computer from California to Belgium. Right. And that's when I had my first computer. But, do we, um, do we I, ask which year that was, Francis, or we better not? That was 80, 86, maybe, something, something around 86 this, or 87. This, this might be a shock for our younger viewers. There was a world before computers, but I, I'll get in trouble. You go. Yeah, but I'm like your younger viewers because I cannot imagine a world without computers. I just can't imagine yeah. how it works. Yes. But in any event, you know, clinical trials, as we know, I mean, it's all about data, really. Yeah. And so one of the things that, for example, GCP brought with it was the establishment of clinical trial registries. Yeah. So when we were working on GCP and working with the commission and parliament and so forth on the, let's say, the directive for implementing good clinical practice in Europe, one of the things they then set up was the European Clinical Trials Database. And then I also happened to sit on the WHO committee that established their international clinical trial registries platform. So that was all during, let's say, the early 2000s, middle 2000s, we were setting these up. And then I was also involved with a number of European projects that was doing registries for patients, mostly patients with rare diseases, and trying to establish registries between clinicians and patients in order to get, let's say, a certain critical mass that would allow for research on these rare conditions. And so data became more and more important. Currently now, I, I chair the International Science Council's CODADA, mm -hmm. which is the Committee on Data. I chair, I chair the International Data Policy Committee, and I, I've been doing, and then I work also with the, with the Research Data Alliance and a number of other groups looking pretty much at data policy and also data policy in terms of crises and so forth. So, so I've become more and more interested in data. And by the way, it's very interesting to see in the ICHE6, the Good Clinical Practice Guideline, the new revision that's just out, really has one of the most important parts of the revision is a whole section on data and data integrity. So I think that's very important for us here. Yeah. I think just as a, yeah, the point you're making there, I mean, 
Grey Ormond Street being a rare disease hospital by design. The importance of sharing data across different areas to try and tackle rare diseases is, is fundamental to the work we do. And I think it's people underestimate the obstructions and, and the, the problems that were initially there with even the concept of sharing data between countries. So very important stuff. Yeah. And Joe, you would have noticed that too with your work during COVID, you know, yeah. how, how important it became to share data. And that was a huge motivation for the, for looking for ways to share data was yeah. in fact, the early part of COVID, the 2000 March to May or something in that period, people were really looking very hard and they still are now, of course, yeah. looking at how we can share data while at the same time, maintaining privacy and confidentiality and all the things that go with sharing data. Yeah. So just to say something about the digital world, which is where, yeah. where I cut you off, I'm sorry. But um, I mean, I tell people everything that happens now in Brussels is about creating a digitalized society. And in fact, even at the UN level and the relationship between, let's say, Europe and the US, this is all done now in terms of how do we construct our digital societies, which include digital healthcare, which include a digital economy, and which include also digital scientific infrastructures. So the major legislation that takes place in our societies today has to do somehow, one way or another usually, with regard to our digital societies. I mean, right now, the most important piece of legislation, I would say, maybe I'm prejudiced, and I am prejudiced, but mm -hmm. the most important piece of legislation that's being discussed in Brussels is the AI Act. The council just came together last weekend, and that was a major part of their discussion. And now they're going to go to a trilogue, so that means they have to get into some kind of bargaining and compromising position between the commission, the parliament, and the council on this AI Act. And it is since the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe, this has been really the focus of how we do this. And the reason why it's a focus is because we are completely centered, all of us, I believe, I am anyway, on our screens. We're either looking at our computers or we're looking at our telephones. And occasionally we look up and we see that somebody's sitting across the table from us. Yeah. And we're really, really focused on, on what we can do with this digital technology that we have. And, and I want to say that, you know, I, I used to attend a, a few times the European Academy of Pediatrics, their ethics working group that you led. And sometimes I was there as a guest. And one of the things that we did there was to write a paper on the effect of screen technology on children. I forget the title of the paper, in fact, that we wrote there, but that really influenced me a great deal. And I thought that the ethics working group at the European Academy of Pediatrics was this incredible place in Europe. I always felt it to be a very restful meeting to go to where there was a great deal of philosophical reflection. Of the, all of the people there were, were pediatricians and, and very much pediatricians, people, you know, people working on the floor of clinics or seeing mm -hmm. children on a daily basis. But the reflection was very, very 
deep and very thoughtful about what impacted health in children in Europe generally. And some of the best papers that participated in happened in those rooms. Like everything, there are huge benefits to this digitalization. And we mentioned data sharing already and technological advances that, that help children, that can help children with things like neurological problems, that can help people who have difficulties make more of their time on this planet. So there are very good things. But I, I think the balance, and that paper certainly reflected some of this, the harms are starting to become more evident of, I mean, you put it very nicely there, that we sit looking at our phone and look up and there's someone opposite us. We could have been having a conversation with our relationship, whatever it is. And that kind of difficulty of how this might affect the developing brain, we're starting to learn the impacts of this. And I think, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the media at the moment about how the, uh, the Silicon Valley leaders, they don't really have their children doing the same things on social networks and digital devices that the rest of us do. Have you any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think it's just going to become more. Our connection to machines and to devices is only going to increase. And I, I think you're right. It has, it's about the effect to a certain extent on the brain, but it's, it's really also the effect on society as well. Yeah. Uh, on the social life that we have. I remember, you know, in Belgium, I find people are extremely friendly and pleasant, but they, they tend to live inside their houses. But I was shocked, you know, when I saw pictures of Leuven, where I live now, in the 1930s, because everybody was living on their doorstep. They were all out on the street. They were cooking on the street. They were washing on the street. They were just out on their street. And I think, to a certain extent, the radio, but it's really the television that transformed our social lives from mm. our doorsteps to our living rooms. And what the mobile phone has done is transform that from our living rooms to our bedrooms or to a kind of solipsism mm. where we relate more directly to a screen than we do to persons. Mm. And you can see so often young people will be sitting around a table in a cafe in Leuven and they'll be texting one another. They're sitting mm. next to each other, but they're texting one another. But adults do that too. Mm. You can see, you know, and probably I do that with my wife as well. If we go to a cafe <laughs> and have a beer or something, we're sitting there and, and we're looking at our screens. It's just become so much part of us. And I think the real challenge though in the future, and this is going to be a huge challenge, is how will children learn when they're no longer writing on paper? Because I think... The act of writing is extremely important for the formation of thought and thinking. The act of using a pen on a piece of paper is not the same as using a keyboard, I believe. And how will people learn with AI when you can go to ChatGPT or I can go to ChatGPT and it can write a better conference proposal 
than I could write. So how will people learn to write a conference proposal if they've never had to struggle with it? How will they learn to write a book report if they've never had to struggle with getting language grammatically correct, getting sentences one to follow the other, if they've never had to struggle with programming a computer because now they can get that from ChatGPT or somewhere else very easily. It's a super point. I have this, you know, well, young people now in my house, we've had this debate and discussion, and it's quite fascinating, different views. The core skills you talk about, luckily enough, they've all bought my, um, <laughs> saying the same thing as you've just said to them. Yeah, it's very important because writing is how you develop. It's how you, your thoughts. But I feel for young people because I've, I've been on the other side where we're marking dissertations and ethics papers that people put in as part of the exams here, master's modules and things. And, and we're now having to face a world where these things could have been written by ChatGPT. And actually, how do you tell? How can you work out whether something is written by the person submitting it or not? So as well as the young people needing to learn to write, they come into a space where people are immediately going, well, did you write this? And I guess there's always been allegations of copying and cheating, and, and some people sadly have, have gone that road. But actually, the, the machines are very good at this. and You can write an essay in the style of someone now. It's utterly astonishing. So even the way we assess has now changed to a lot more face-to-face, -face, more back, back to a presentation, rather than just essay writing. Because as far as I, you know, the very clever people tell me, it's really hard to categorically tell who wrote a piece now. And if someone just says, I wrote this, and they didn't, it's really hard to work out if that's true or not. And that that's a real problem in terms of the fairness of assessment, isn't it? So... I don't envy young people entering this space where it's immediately tougher to even prove that you've done the work. So, yeah, it's, it's a very different world. If I could say, I, I agree, but I think it goes deeper. Yeah. Taught writing for quite a few years at the universities here. And mm. this was, you know, when computers just were coming out. And, and so that was just there. But the amount of, of plagiarism you're confronted with it's extraordinary, really extraordinary, I, I thought. Yeah. In, my, in my own case, I can't say for others. And you have to look for techniques to teach people to write where they don't feel a need to plagiarize and also that they, they're not able to in a certain sense. Yeah. But the problem is it's becoming much more difficult now to even distinguish between what plagiarism is and what it isn't, as you suggest, because... You know, these are tools. We have a spell check, a grammar check. So that is that cheating? Yeah. We ask, you know, you know, we, if I say to ChatGPT, well, give me 10 bullet points for the impact of the digital society on children. Is that cheating or is that just doing research? I just presume that we, that's what you've done, Francis. <laughs> Actually, I. I wish I had, but I, I think, and this is, in fact, we have a summer school coming up on publication and some AI, and this is what the editors are now struggling with too. How do we deal with these technologies that generate text in scientific publications or for scientific publications? And I think they're really caught in a very difficult position to say, well, 
firstly, they're not going to be able to distinguish, you know, authorship from a person from a machine. They won't be able to distinguish that. No. And secondly, how do you evaluate something that's generated by a machine? And, and I think this is very important for children too, because it comes down to something very fundamental. It comes down to something like honesty and integrity, mm. but it also comes down to that honesty and integrity is some kind of a relationship between ourselves and reality, between ourselves and what's true, or what we understand to be true, what we take to be true. And so this digital world impacts the way the children will understand the reality around them. It will impact, and in a very important way, I think, what children think is important, what they think is valuable. So it will come down to very basic things like values and what is real out there. And the thing is, Joe, you and I, we can have a view on what's important, what's valuable, and what's real. But our children may have a different view on that. And it's going to be very hard to say, well, we're right and they're wrong, or they're right and we're wrong. I guess this has been the way throughout humanity, hasn't it? I mean, I, I remember my parents being wrong about lots of stuff until I started to agree with them when I got to the age of about 19 or 20. It wasn't that my views had changed at all, as you understand. <laughs> but you do, you know, there, there are naturally things, that, and the world has changed. And, you know, a world without the internet, without mobile phones, without it, it's, it's so different. Yeah, the core values, I have to think, are the same. I think our core desire to improve the world, to make people live better lives, et cetera, et cetera. I, I have to say, Francis, one comment I need to make is you've mentioned a couple of times the supranational bodies in Brussels. And I live in, living in a country that's just withdrawn from those places. Other nation states are available. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Yes. I think you know my views, but I'll, I'll move on rapidly. <laughs> no, no, but I, I, no, that's very important. That's very, very important because that's also related to the core of our conversation to the digital society. Absolutely. Because really, it is Brussels that's pushing very much a digital society. Yeah. And it is this feeling. The other thing that a digital society brings with it is a kind of distanciation. Yeah. And, and, and this is a, a huge problem. With Brussels, it's it's become extremely distant mm. from from people and from their lives, and increasingly so. And I would say during the COVID period, and now with the war in Ukraine, even further more distance from people. So we we are seeing, and I mean, we don't have to do all the politics, but you know, Macron came out a few days ago and blamed the riots in France on social media. That's yeah. where he blamed the riots. That was his explanation for the riots. I think, yeah. I mean, part of this is the news cycle is it's rapid, it's quick. But also, I think that's large events will always be transmitted and people will learn about them. But we now learn about them much, much more rapidly than ever before. And the news cycle, although it moves on quickly as well, one of the things that comes with this is it can focus on individuals. So I think you were making the point that the large organizations are less interested in most people's lives. Maybe that's fair or unfair. It seems to be a, a, a suggestion. I, I certainly agree with that. It's also the case that 
people whose lives were largely private can now find themselves in the middle of a very rapid social media storm. And this, it's partly, and I I saw very sorry for young people who have this as a norm now, a desire for fame rather than achievement and, you know, human flourishing, all that sort of stuff, that actually fame is now a massive, an opiate of the people, if you like. And in, in the setting of social media, one of the things it does mean is that that is achievable to people where it would have been impossible 30, 40 years ago, unless you won a talent show or you were very, very skilled about something or got into politics. But most people wouldn't feature much more than their local newspaper. And now you can be the topic of a global media sensation with social media very rapidly. And I, I, that, that's, that's good in one way and also hugely problematic in another. And I guess in terms of how this affects our children and what they might view as a good life, Social media and this sort of digital environment have probably changed that. And I guess that's something that it's not value laden in itself. It's just a change that we have to acknowledge and and think about, I guess. Yeah. It's the difference between the world on your front sidewalk and you're living in a neighborhood. When I grew up, you know, we were told to go outside and play and that's what we did. And we were just out with children all the time in the neighborhood. And that was our whole world. It was that world yeah. of the children in the neighborhood. Yeah. But we're all guilty of it. I mean, we all we all want our five minutes of fame. We do it on Facebook. We do it on LinkedIn. Yeah. We do it on Twitter. We think we're very clever at a certain point. In, you know. And every day we, we, we are thinking about, well, how can I profile myself? You know, how can I project myself out there in the world? How can I sell my brand is the other way of putting it, isn't it? Yeah. How can I brand myself? Yeah. You know, and that's quite different than, than the neighborhood we grew up in, you know, because these are very fleeting Mm -hmm. moments of of pleasure really, or, or of despair. But for some people quite damaging, I think. Damaging. Yeah. Because we, if we measure ourselves against what we see on a screen, Rather than the guy next door who gets up every day and goes to work and comes home and he's out cutting his lawn or my friends across the street and we're going to go off on our play basketball or go on our skateboards or something. It's a different way to measure yourself. I, I guess, I mean, I, I don't want to finish on a downer here, <laughs> I, but the other thing we must acknowledge, I mean, that kind of the body shaming, I think, you know, that's a tough space to be in. And I, you know, I, there does need to be more regulation, absolutely, from all bodies. Social media bodies have a duty of care to people who use their platforms. They can't be completely ignorant of content and say, well, we're just a platform. I think very strongly that there needs to be a responsibility for those who are making large amounts of money out of the people who, who use their platforms. But it's more than that. There needs to be protection for young people. At the same time, and the balance has to come in. This is a fantastic resource. And I, I sat in COVID with my, my young you know, children at home who were stuck in the house and are working pretty hard doing exams with their school. I have to say they did a great job. I have to say they did a great job educating, trying to make sure they, they kept a routine and a life. But actually their relationships with their friends, which they couldn't have, they couldn't go into town and do all the stuff we did as kids during that pandemic. And Actually, the digital world probably kept many children above the waterline 
in terms of peer contacts. And I, I, I used to be very, you know, children be on PlayStation talking to each other as they shot cyborgs, whatever it was. And I'd be like, oh, come on, you know, limit the time on there. But actually during COVID, I was very grateful for that ability for them to interact with their friends. Like, I think there is some early data showing that children who had the opportunity to do that did better in terms of their well-being post-pandemic. So I think there are advantages for unforeseen problems in the world where communication actually is a really positive thing for children in the digital space. Oh, I fully agree. I fully agree. And I, I can imagine during the lockdowns and COVID, for many children, their telephone saved them. Yeah, it's absolutely important. And the other very important point you bring up with regard to, let's say, body shaming or yeah. is this whole idea of identity and how I identify yes. ourselves. Yeah. And and this is where you know, this is where also we're seeing the divides in our society because of the impact the digital world is really impacting the way in which people identify themselves. And it, it's not entirely bad, for sure. But it's, it's something to be, it's a care, something we should be concerned about and we should think about. Excellent. Francis, thank you. That's been very, very interesting. I think we could probably talk all day, actually, but in true podcast time, we're limited. But uh, thank you so much for giving your time so generously. It's been thoroughly engaging and I hope for our listeners, it's, it's an interesting podcast. So thanks again, Francis. Thank you, Joe. It's been a complete pleasure for me to, to talk to you. Okay, thank you very much. And yeah, look forward to our next Bioethics podcast in a couple of weeks. Thank you, everybody. And I hope you've enjoyed this. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gosh Bioethics podcast. We would love to get your feedback on the episode, as well as suggestions for future topics you'd like to hear about. You can find a link to the feedback survey in the description for the episode. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn, or you can visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.